Name that tune, my friends. Can you name that tune? This is a fantastic song. Brings me back to my childhood. But when I go to Canada, I have to play some Canadian music. And you know, I don't really know, and I didn't ask this week when I was there, if anybody even listens to this band anymore. But to me, this was Canadian rock growing up in Middlebury, Vermont, 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 when I was a kid. This was what was hot for a bit, and it's a Canadian band. And when I go to Canada, as I went to Calgary and Ontario this week, I had to play a little bit of this band. So we'll finish out the intro, then I'll reveal the artist. They shot a movie once In my hometown Everybody was in it For miles around Out at the speedway Some kind of thing. Well, I ain't no movie star But I can get behind anything Yeah, I can get behind anything Welcome back to the Sprinkler Nerd Show. I'm your host, Andy Humphrey, and that was the Tragically Hip with their... Very popular song, at least to me, Blow at High Doe. Blow at High Doe by The Tragically Hip. Hope you enjoyed that little intro. And the reason I planted that in here today is because I was trying to find some way to be a bit creative because what I'm going to play for you in this episode is a recording of the presentation that I gave this week to the Landscape Ontario organization. It was the Irrigation Conference held in Milton, Ontario. And because I'm replaying an episode, it doesn't really give me an opportunity to be creative and come up with interesting things, more interesting things to share with you. So I kind of felt like I just wanted to find a way to release a little creative juice to the beginning of this episode because I'm going to sign off here in just a moment and play my recorded presentation to the group. And before I play that, I do want to give a special thank you to Landscape Ontario for inviting myself and Paul Bassett to speak this week. It was amazing to meet so many curious people, so many contractors looking to improve their business, to improve the way they do things, to look for new opportunities. And it's just so refreshing. So I can't thank you enough for having us. And it was a really special opportunity for me personally because I was able to, what felt like, tee up my first mentor in this business, Paul Bassett, and my best friend today. And it couldn't have been a better 
place to do that. And Paul just, his presentation, he knocked it out of the park. And I do have a recording of his presentation. The audio isn't great, but I'm working on ways to improve that so that I can play that for you as well. And he spoke about water savings as a service and his tenure starting water savers and working on some amazing projects all over the country and how what he's learned can actually be implemented by really any irrigation business anywhere, essentially. So um, let's see. So yeah, that was uh, this week was was a was a fast paced week. And I'm recording this episode late on Thursday night. I did get back to my home Wednesday evening, got a bunch of stuff done in the office on Thursday, and uh, which is today. And I, what I wanted to do was wanted to have a podcast because I'm really trying, really trying to stick to uh, my goal, which is one episode every week, regardless of how long, as long as the content, let's say, is interesting to me. I hope it is interesting to you. So that's why I was I kind of uh, threw in that intro because that was fun for me to create to create something like that. And I really enjoy just creating things. So the rest of this episode is going to be is pre-recorded. However, that intro was just a little bit of, of my creation. And let's see, one other special thank you that I really want to mention is to Michelle and Mo Von Roeder for for being a listener of the Sprinkler Nerd Show and planting the seed with Landscape Ontario that it might be new and different and exciting to have Paul and myself come to the conference and talk to everyone. And I hope that, let's see, I was going to say, I hope that we delivered on that, but I, I just hope that we were interesting and inspiring and perhaps entertaining and that we maybe planted some seeds to just let's say, think a little bit different on how you approach your business and how you may think about the landscape and irrigation industry. So um, not editing this. This is all real. This is all live. So what you hear is what you get. Andy, is there anything else you would like to share? Hmm, that's a great question, Andy. Let me think about that for just a moment. No, I don't think so. We're probably six or seven minutes into this intro already. So let's just go ahead and roll the presentation to the Landscape Ontario Irrigation Conference on Curiosity in Irrigation Innovation. So without further ado, here we go. If you are an irrigation professional, old or new, who designs, installs, or maintains high-end residential, commercial, or municipal properties, and you wanna use technology to improve your business, to get a leg up on your competition, even if you're an old school irrigator from the days of hydraulic systems, this show is for you. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, My name is Andy Humphrey, and for the past 20 years, I have been in this industry and staying in this industry mostly because I've been searching for an answer to 
a particular problem, and I haven't been able to find the answer yet. As soon as I think I may have found a possible solution, it oftentimes isn't what it was supposed to be, or it changes, and it's kept me uh, inspired, motivated to continue working in this industry and seeing how can the technology over time help us solve the answer to this problem. So what I would like to do to start out today, there's pens on the table. If you have a phone, I would like you to get it out because I'm going to ask you, I'm going to ask you this question. And maybe by the end, we can figure out an answer to the problem. But I think it would be interesting to just write down, make a note on what comes to your mind first when I mention this question to you. Okay, does anybody want to guess what question I might be asking today? It does have to relate to this picture here. And I think that for some of you, the question might seem obvious, or you may have an answer that comes to mind first. And what I found is there kind of is no right or wrong answer to the question I'm going to ask you. What's most interesting is what comes to your mind first when you think of how to answer this question. And this question is the question that has kept me interested in this industry for what seems like so long now, 20 years. So here's the question. How long should you water your lawn? Does anybody have any guesses? Anybody want to take a stab on how long you should water your lawn? 15 minutes, 30 minutes, it depends. How much time do you have for me to answer the question? And you know, I said 20 years, but it's actually 21 years and nine months ago that I got into this industry. And when I say this industry, I mean irrigation specific. It was 2002 to be exact, and it was my first job out of college. I was trained as a landscape architect, landscape designer, and I was hired by a company in Maryland called Chapel Valley Landscape Company, and they hired me to do what you might say CAD work, like a CAD jockey. I knew CAD because I had been trained on it in college, but I didn't really know it. You know, you think you know something when you're in college, but then you come out to the real world and you realize, wow, there's so much more to learn. So I started um, basically duplicating hand-drawn landscape architecture plans on the computer for the landscape architects that were on staff that were doing everything by hand. And on my, what's ironic is on my first day at that job, I was put into um, a workshop that was being held by Eagle Point, which at the time was a leading uh, architectural engineering CAD software. And the seminar was being hosted by an irrigation salesman at the company because he saw the vision for bringing computer-aided drafting to the company, which was a large landscape company. And you know, I was new to the company. Here I was out of school. I knew CAD. And he was like, Andy, you should come to this, this workshop. And that gentleman who's, who hosted it is here today. And he's sitting right in the back, Paul Bassett. And he's going to talk to you here shortly. And that was my first sort of introduction to the world of irrigation. And it came through Paul knowing that I knew how to use CAD, Paul being in sales and wanting to present to his clients a 
uh, computer-aided uh, drawing, right? Uh, in the sales process, he wanted to sit down with the client, show them where all the sprinklers were going to go, and have something really presentable. So he would draw them up by hand, give it to me. I would turn them into CAD, give it back to Paul. And I didn't know what I was doing. He would just have a sprinkler here and a sprinkler here. And he'd say, label this pipe one and a half inch, label this pipe two inch, label this pipe one inch. And of course, I could draw it, but I didn't know why I was doing it in that way. But I was interested. Um, I think probably because Paul inspired me to be interested, but it seemed like there was more going on with an irrigation system than there was just doing landscape plans. And it seemed like there were 100 people doing landscape architecture type drawings, but very few people doing irrigation work like that. And so I started to hang out with Paul more often and he started taking me with him on, you know, you might call side jobs, even though they weren't really, you know, competing side jobs with the company, but friends, family, relatives, you know, start up their systems, blow them out, do little repair work on Saturdays and Sundays. So he would take me with him, and that's when I learned how the components work together. And I remember there was one morning, it might have been the first or second time I started traveling with Paul, that we rolled up to one of his clients' houses, and I don't remember if it was morning or night, but it was dark, like this picture, and it was raining, like this picture, and I saw that the sprinklers were on, and then I got curious, because I didn't know how an irrigation controller worked. I really, I knew nothing. I was just getting into the business. But Paul had my attention, because I asked him, Paul, how come the sprinklers aren't running? And he started to tell me about rain sensors and things. He said, okay, well, how do, the, how do the sprinklers know how long to water? How do they know if right now is the right time to come on? And that's when it dawned on me when Paul said, well, they're just set on a timer. Monday, Wednesday, Friday, 6 a.m., the sprinklers come on for 15 minutes or a set amount of time. And I thought to myself, okay, that's interesting. But how does that timer know if the soil's wet or dry, how long it should water? How does it know? And Paul said, well, it doesn't know. And it was like almost literally that thought that made me realize there's technology out in the world. We, in 2002, we had the internet. We had Google just recently. We had email. We had cell phones. We had uh, Nextel push to talk. Remember, that was pretty awesome. But the sprinklers were just coming on based on a timer. And I thought to myself, man, there is going to be some serious changes in the irrigation industry in the future. Because water's a resource, but it's just coming on based on an alarm clock. Little did I know that 20 years later, we would kind of still be doing the same thing, <laughs> which is a bit crazy. I thought that the technology life cycle would be a lot faster. And so I wanted to share that because that was the sort of the spark of inspiration that got me into this business. And it's the question that, that I've been trying to answer. And maybe it's because I happen to feel like I have a curious mind, so I ask a lot of questions and I wonder a lot, and I haven't been able to find an answer to this question of how long should you water your lawn? So let's uh, transition. I'm going to play a video here share a little story. 
This is Isaac Newton sitting under an apple tree, and the, the legend has it that in 1665, Isaac Newton formulated the gravitational theory after watching an apple fall and asking why the apple fell straight down rather than sideways or even upwards. And to, I think, all of us in this room, it seems obvious. We know gravity. We grew up with gravity. Gravity is just a, it's one of those things that is just a known scientific fact. But then I asked myself, why did it take until 1665? I mean, in the history of the world, 1665 is less than 400 years ago that somebody kind of discovered gravity, even though the world's thousands of years old. Why did it take so long for someone like Isaac Newton to figure out gravity? And what's also interesting is I, I've talked about this before, but just recently I wanted to learn a little bit more about why it took so long. And I did a little bit of research and found out, and this is actually pretty awesome, I found out that scientists like Newton didn't just realize how we understand the world and how to revolutionize the world, they had to be revolutionary. So it wasn't just the idea that was revolutionary, they had to be revolutionaries because they were fighting 2,000 years of power struggles that not only set strict limits on how each member of society could operate, but they also told you what you could not couldn't ask questions about. So imagine that. Imagine if you couldn't ask questions because curiosity was a sin. So what makes scientists like Newton so amazing is they ask questions that hadn't been asked before. And essentially, they weren't allowed to ask questions because powerful people control the information as well as the armies, and rulers controlled the story. So curiosity was a sin. And I would like to say it's not a sin anymore. <laughs> so you have the freedom to be curious. And I would encourage you to be curious. And we're going to talk more about this today. So that's essentially <clears throat> a little bit more in curiosity and what, what has gotten me interested in this industry. All right, this is going to be a fun one. Does anybody know what we're looking at? Just take a random guess. Somebody guess. What are we looking at? PGP. <laughs> it's it's uh, you're probably you're in the same vicinity. <laughs> it's not something that goes on a spaceship. It is an irrigation component. Rain sensor. Rain sensor. Yes, that is the uh, patent drawing on a rain sensor. And I'm going to read you the. Um, like the description of the patent, okay? Because I think you'll find this interesting. A moisture responsive actuator is employed for controlling the operation of a fluid operated sprinkling or irrigating system or the like. The moisture responsive actuator is provided with hydroscopic material which expands in response to contact with rainwater and depresses a switch to deactivate the sprinkling system. The hydroscopic material contracts upon drying, therefore releasing said switch, whereupon the sprinkling system is activated. 
Does that seem pretty accurate to everyone? Hydroscopic material swells up, right? Flips a switch. And I do have, everybody knows these RAM sensors, but I'll just pass, pass the, uh, what you might call the cork discs around, just as a reminder. And that is essentially the technology that is inside, even though it might be slightly different, it's the fundamental technology that's inside most rain sensors. So then I would like to ask you, when, what year do you think this patent was filed? Take a guess. 72. Somebody was cheating. <laughs> no, 1972 is exactly correct. Yeah. <laughs> And that's pretty amazing because 1972 was 52 years ago, right? We've been using the, essentially the exact same mechanism in a rain sensor for 52 years. And it's not like gravity, but then I ask the question, why are we still using that technology? Why isn't there a different way to do it, a better way to do it. We all know what happens to rain sensors over time. We can all sit here and joke about them and show everybody has 100 pictures on their phone of that rain sensor you know, that's tipped upside down under the bush. But we're still using them. So what if there was another way? I guess that's the, that's the type of questions I'd like to ask you. What if there was another way? What would that look like? And we can also make the comparison uh, I've heard this recently, and I just wanted to share it with you because it's relevant to a technology evolving, and that would be the carburetor. So I would say, you know, raise your hand if in your family vehicle, the one you drive every day, is there a carburetor? Who has a carburetor in their vehicle, their family vehicle, not their weekend warrior vehicle? Right? Not one hand because we don't really use carburetors in, anymore. We use fuel injectors. And the carburetor, I looked this up, so I don't know this stuff at the top of my head, was invented in about 1880, and it was used until 1980, and then we transitioned to fuel-injected systems. And that type of transition can happen and does happen in every industry with almost every component. And we see some change in our industry here, but not tons and tons of change in our industry. When you think of the way we've been doing things, it's pretty much been the same almost since the beginning. Little changes, but not a lot. So I'd like to propose that the current rain sensors are like a carburetor, ready for change, and anyone in this room could help influence that change. All you gotta do is be curious, ask questions, experiment, try things out, and I believe that curiosity leads to experimentation, and in order to experiment, you have to take some risks. Okay, has anybody seen this show before? Or Dragon's Den, right, as, it's, as it is in Canada. So that is me in 2009 with my son Drew, who's now almost 21 years old, which is crazy. That's me in 2009. And from 2006 to 2009, I sold about $1.5 million of push real lawnmowers on the internet. And I trademarked a name called Eco Mower, Eco Mowers. And I thought that as soon as I learned that uh, how bad for the environment lawnmowers were, and just two cycle engines in general, 
And you start learning about how many lawnmowers are out there and how much pollution per hour and et cetera, et cetera. I thought, man, there's going to be a revolution here. We're going to have all, all this equipment is going to switch to battery power. Hasn't happened yet, but we all know we're closer than ever before because we see it. It's available. It's coming. It's just taken a while. And so my curiosity led me to wonder, how could I get on Shark Tank? Could I you know, pitch the sharks on my idea for building an environment, environmentally friendly lawnmower business? And I was starting with this real mower. Certainly didn't think real mowers were going to take over the world or it was the best way to mow your lawn, but it certainly was eco-friendly, allowed me to get some trademarks. And I'll play this for you. You can go ahead and hit play. Next into the Shark Tank is Andy Humphrey with a company looking to capitalize on the trend in eco-friendly products. And this aired, this was season two in 2011. Has anybody seen this before? This particular episode with me? I'm Andy Humphrey and my company is Eco Mowers. I'm seeking $90,000 in exchange for 20% of my company. I brought with me a lawnmower. Now, this lawnmower is just like the lawnmower that most Americans have in their garage. It's heavy, it's dirty, it's loud, and it's dangerous. Believe it or not, the blades on this lawnmower spin at over 150 miles per hour, and they cause nearly 80,000 hospital injuries every year. But that's not the reason I'm here. The reason I'm here is because lawnmowers are terrible, terrible for the environment. Emissions from lawnmowers is totally unregulated, and the amount of pollution that's emitted in just one hour of using a lawnmower is like driving 10 cars. Really? Why is everybody talking about cars when lawnmowers are worse for the environment? They are big time polluters. So the next big billion dollar movement is reducing emissions from lawn and garden equipment. Who said? The EPA is about to regulate come 2012, emissions on lawn and garden equipment. This it's is really good television now, magic, so I'm happy to tell the whole story. Solution, and it's called the Eco Mower. The Eco Mower is the world's most eco-friendly lawn mower, requires no gas, no batteries, and it's completely silent. So let me give you a quick example on how it works. So the Eco Mower pushes with ease. It's very, very, very easy to push it. And you'll notice that as I cut the grass, the clippings gently come down behind the mower and actually naturally fertilize your lawn. Now, the reason that this isn't your grandfather's old lawnmower is that it has a frictionless cutting system. When these blades spin, they're actually not touching. There's a very small gap that creates no friction, no contact. And the beauty of that is you don't have to sharpen it. I, I, I am totally lost. Lost what? Guys, what are you talking? This was not fun, by the way. Fall gently? Behind the mower? This is like what we call romantic. So do you guys not believe that eco-friendly lawnmowers is going to be the category of the future? There's a whole category of pushed mowers. Well, how big is that market today? And, and who says that those can't run just as easily as this one? Sorry, Damon, are you saying, why isn't he comparing this to the 
ones that already exist? The Bush mowers that currently exist in the market. Dave, let me interpret. I mean, Damon is basically saying Andy is bait and switching. Isn't that what you're saying? Yeah. Hey, guys, we're going to read. I'm like, that's not what I'm saying. What, what are you guys saying? So it was a um, great experience. Happy to tell the whole story. It didn't quite go like I thought it was going to go. And I was literally walking into the shark tank. Because Did you get some money out of it? Didn't get any money. You can, this is on, you can watch this on Hulu. I tried to screen capture it on Hulu, but you can't screen capture Hulu. So I actually set my phone up and recorded my computer screen to get that clip. But I mention this because it all started with me being curious, how do I get on Shark Tank? This was 2010, or no, it was 2009, I think, when I, anyway, somewhere in there. Did some research, found a random Hotmail email address, fired off an email. Heard nothing. Nine months later, got a random call very late at night from an unrecognized phone number, and of course, right to voicemail. But then I listened to the message. I was like, holy shit, that's Shark Tank calling me. <laughs> One thing led to another and ended up on the show, and not everybody that pitches ends up in the show, which is interesting. Um, I don't know the percentage, but if 50 people pitch, they might air 20, because they, they just need content. Right? Content they can mix and match and make great television. And the, for fun, the next slide I'm going to show you, I would just like to call Redemption. Good morning, you guys. Happy Earth Day to you. You know, one of the hottest markets for new products are green and eco-friendly. That much we know. But not everything that's designed to be good for the globe is actually good for business. That's why we got this guy with us. Damon John is known as the shark and the godfather of urban fashion. He's one of the most sought-after branding experts in the country. We know your face from the Shark Tank as well. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. You know... We were talking about this as a branding expert. How can people, let's say people watching right now, have a company that's green, global, they want to do that sort of thing, but how do they brand it so that consumers know that it's, it's that kind of thing? Well, I think that being green is in, and it should right. be in. Uh, that should, your, your name should always include something about it, whether it's eco, whether it says green, planet, something. So you should always, it's, that's your calling card. Okay. And when people pick it up, they want to know that they're going green. All right, let's talk. You brought a few products. So I've had this stored on my computer for a long time. You cannot find this clip on the internet anywhere. <laughs> I think Damon had it, had it removed because this, if you look at this date, it aired April 22nd, which was an anniversary for Earth Day, 2010. I didn't even pitch until October 2010. And that episode didn't even air until about this same date in 2011. So there's Damon a year before saying, if you have an eco-friendly company, call it eco. But he wanted none of that from me. So that's redemption for me. OK, let's, uh, let's jump back to the irrigation industry, not the lawn industry. So I'd like to spark your curiosity with this picture. What are we looking at here? Anybody have a guess? Yep, batteries, right? I don't know if Tesla was invented when I took this picture, which I'll show you in a second. <laughs> oh, Tesla, right. Now we're going to zoom out. There we go. This is a Toro Sentinel controller uh, uh, on a project that I was working on in 2004. I was the the distributorship I was working for was owned by the ex-general manager of 
Toro, Bill Hughes, and he hired me to be the Sentinel guy, because Sentinel was brand new-ish, in 2004, and this was a project, they had no power, and I worked with the contractor to say, hey, let's just power it temporarily with these batteries, because he was gonna go get just battery-operated you know, valve controllers. So this actually saved him a ton of money. But if you look close at the controller, you might see something unique about it. Does anybody see anything different inside that controller that may not normally be there? If you look on the top right-hand side, we'll see at the laser pointer, there is a box, and that box has a little label on it that says baseline. And I have this picture up here because in 2004, when I was working for a Toro distributor, two-wire was kind of becoming a thing. We all know it's been around for a long time, but it was becoming more popular in the commercial irrigation side of the business. And we had Rainbird MDC, we had some two-core controllers, but outside of that, there wasn't a lot of choices. Toro did not have a system. And so we kind of randomly came across this baseline control company. And the way the two-wire technology worked was pretty phenomenal. And I put the, con put the devices in front of a couple contractors. They loved it. But unfortunately, Baseline did not have a field controller, believe it or not. All they had was a desktop computer that ran out to a, basically a box that looked just like this, and your two-wire came out of that box. But it was a computer that drove the system because the engineers were, they, had, they, knew how to, they knew how to write software. So they wrote software and then they built decoders and it ran on a computer, but they didn't have a control box like this. And Toro didn't have two wire. So we thought, all right, I wonder if we can just get these guys together and they can make baseline decoders work on a Toro system. So we put the two engineers together and they made it work. Unfortunately, you had to program the decoders still with a laptop Right? Zones 1 through 99 in this case, you could program with a laptop. And as soon as the decoder was programmed with a number, then the Sentinel controller could, uh, could control it. And again, I put this up here because it all started with a thought of curiosity. I wonder if we could make baseline decoders work with Toro. And then we had to experiment. So the curiosity led to this experiment. And this experiment was a little bit risky because we ran it off the of batteries temporarily. We had to do some programming with a laptop, but it worked. And I don't know if it's fortunate or unfortunate that Baseline and Toro never really put anything together. It was super formal. And now Baseline has their own controllers and I spent 15 years helping them get to where they are now. Oh, I forgot, there's a closer look at the Baseline interface. Okay. What field are we looking at here? Any guesses? You got it, Lambeau Field. And again, I'm showing you this example because curiosity leads to experimentation, which is sometimes risky whenever something is new. And the folks at Green Bay totally loved their baseline system. Loved it, loved it, loved it. I came to do some training shortly after, shortly after it was installed and 
I thought to myself, we just had this new firmware update. Let me update the firmware for these guys. I'm here on site. I'll put in the USB drive in the controller. We'll update the firmware. And then guess what happened? Yeah, the controller basically bricked. <laughs> and there I was on Lambeau Field, the controller essentially bricked. And this was not long. I don't remember if it was a day or two or three, but they were a couple of days away from ripping up the field and laying new sod. And now their watering system was out of commission. And I mention this again because sometimes you have to take a risk. I didn't think updating the firmware was a risk, but anytime you're working with new technology, it doesn't always go the way that you want it to go. And thankfully, I can't remember exactly what we did to fix it, but I spent the rest of the afternoon fiddling with the controller uh, instead of providing training, and it was, it was a mess. <laughs> okay, this is fun. We're gonna change gears for a moment. And I, so this is a list of some job skills. I'll go ahead and read them, in case anybody in the back doesn't have their glasses on. Pipe installation, system maintenance, troubleshooting, repair and replacement, reading and interpreting blueprints, joining pipe and fittings, code compliance, customer service, problem solving, cost estimation. What, what specific job do you think this is? Sounds like irrigation technician, right? Or irrigation design or sales, cost estimation. Mm -hmm. Let's see a show of hands. How many people would agree with that? This looks like irrigation, right? Some of you think that's too easy. <laughs> it's got to be something else, or you wouldn't be asking. <clears throat> All right, well, there it is. That's the job description. Plumber. And I didn't make this list. Of course, it's 2024, so I asked ChatGPT to provide me with a list of the skills that a plumber performs in their job. And that list was the list, I think there was a couple more that I removed just to make the impact bigger, but that was the list that it generated. But if you read it, it looks just like irrigation. So we may have similar job skills between plumbing and irrigation. So then I asked ChatGPT to provide me with the same list of the skills that an irrigation contractor does in their job, and it provided me with the same list, but there was one thing different. What was different was it listed, and this was ChatGPT, soil and plant knowledge. Understanding how different soil types and plant species affect irrigation needs and system design. That seemed to be the differentiator from plumbing to irrigation. And to me, what's interesting, and I'm curious about this, is we seem to spend a lot of time talking about all the items on the first list, system design, cost estimation, hydraulic charts, pressure, right? All these things. Yet, apparently, this is one of the most important aspects of an irrigator versus a plumber. And I don't think we talk enough about it. So we talk about the things that a plumber does. 
So I would like to propose this. Being a plumber is easy, and being an irrigator is hard. Would you guys agree with that? <laughs> Paul says yes, because he gets it. Yeah, pl plumbing is more black and white. You don't have as many. Think about how many variables we have when we look at soil and plant and weather and everything else. There's just a ton of variables. So in many ways, it's a lot harder than just taking out a toilet and putting one in and running pipe through the ceiling and hanging this pipe. I mean, plumbing, when you look at it, seems a lot easier than irrigation. Right? You don't have to dig. Well, some plumbers might dig. Utility plumber, maybe. Yeah, so I'm saying, I say this because it's important to remember that this is hard, so that you, everyone in this room has value because this is hard. And it's easy sometimes to let other industries or our customers devalue what we do because they don't realize just how hard it is when you start talking about the plants and the soil and the water needs. Okay, so let's take that idea and transition it over to what is smart. Somebody give me an idea on what smart means for our industry. Irrigating to the plant needs. Okay, great. Irrigating to the plant needs. How about head-to-head -head spacing? Probably pretty smart. Using MP-style nozzles, rotating nozzles, Pressure regulators, pressure regulating valves, pressure regulating sprinklers, ET-based control systems, right? Those are all things that we think about when we think about a smart system. And sometimes we kind of look like this. What, what is smart? What percent is this? It can, get, it can seemingly get confusing rather quickly. And sometimes because it's confusing, we don't know where to, where to start or what's going to be the impact. And should we switch the controller? Should we should switch the sprinklers? Should we make sure this zone has good DU? Right? Where, where do we start? And the next two uh, bullets I'm going to add here in by no means are meant to call out a specific manufacturer. It's just real data that's on real websites that I think adds to the confusion of what is smart. So here's an example. The MP Rotator's unique design with multiple rotating streams is the world's most efficient sprinkler nozzle with up to 30% water savings versus traditional sprinklers. So does that mean if you switch the nozzles, immediately you're saving 30%? Maybe, maybe not. It's just interesting. It makes me more curious because you can still save water without switching the nozzles. Right? There's multiple ways to do things, but the nozzle itself isn't necessarily the answer. If you switch a toilet from a high flush to a low flush, you get immediate savings, because every time you flush the toilet, it's less water. But it doesn't quite work that way in the landscape. So then we can call out a similar, another manufacturer again. This is just for, let's call this entertainment purposes. The high efficiency of the HEVAN nozzle allows you to shorten your sprinkler run times by up to 35%, saving you water and money. Awesome, I can put in HEVAN nozzles and reduce my run times by 35%. But does that mean I've saved water? Maybe. <laughs> Maybe not. And I'm saying this because it's, I encourage you guys to question 
to question your own, you know, your own curiosity on these and how to make these products work for you. Okay, back to the question at hand. How long should you water your lawn? As long as it needs to be watered. Right, one could say water till it's wet. But I think there's another, there's another sister question to this question. So when I say there's a problem, there's kind of two, two corresponding problems that work together. Because the other question is when should you water your lawn? How long and when should you water your lawn? And they're kind of sister questions, and they go together. Either not one is more important than the other. So what I'd like to do is show you some data and some different ways of thinking about the question. So what we're looking at here is a moisture graph. It's just moisture over time. You can see moisture go up to a spike, then it dries down, then it goes up again, then it dries down, so on and so forth. That's just moisture going up and down. And without any other data, we don't know what the source of the moisture is. Right? We don't know if that is rain, or we don't know if that is uh, somebody running the sprinklers. It's just moisture. So moisture all by itself doesn't really tell us exactly what's happening on, on a project. Okay, and here's, uh, just as an example, here's our when and how long. When is the day, right, the start, day of the week and the runtime for traditional controller programming. How long is the runtime? So that's where these two questions can kind of come together. So now let's overlay some data on here. Got some blue bars going up. And there's one place in here that we don't have any, there's no bars on, on this particular spike, right? Does anybody have any guesses on why? Yep, could be, could be a rain event. Let's put that on here. And so when you start trying to figure out the answer to the question of how long should you water and when should you water, you need more sources of data, right? If, I, if we're looking at moisture all by itself, we don't know what's causing it. And if we just look at runtime, that's not enough. It's interesting to look at rainfall and runtime as it affects the moisture. So in this example right here, these are all little runtime. That's that one's not. Okay, that's the missing the missing gap in the data. So then I'd like to ask you if if the answer to the questions of how long to water and when to water were easy, what would that look like? And I, I tend to ask myself that question a lot, especially to hard questions. If it were easy, what would it look like? You know, does the future mean we've got some AI and it just can, we don't have to do anything anymore? Maybe. So one step towards figuring, figuring this out, this is a picture from September. Again, you're gonna hear from this gentleman here. This is Paul, he's sitting in the back of the room. And he's gonna share some amazing expertise with you a little later on. This is Paul sitting on, are you on a bucket or a valve box? Bucket. bucket. Sitting on a bucket, just like all of you guys, sitting on a bucket. 
And this is on a large project in Hawaii. And there were, I think, 40 or 50 zones on this project that were isolated, right? Couldn't be connected to a controller, no power, median strips. And so we, you know, we're curious, we experiment, we take some risks. This is both an experiment and a bit of a risk. This is a, what we're calling a smart valve. It's a completely wireless, uh, that's the actual valve control module. And then you can see just in the back, there's a Netafim hydrometer, right? And the hydrometer has the valve actuation and it has the water meter and it has the digital output. So we also have the digital side. We can read the flow remotely. And then we have a wireless pressure transducer. And the pressure transducer, there's a port on the side of the hydrometer. So you can screw the pressure transducer in. And then we have a wireless soil moisture sensor. So that's the setup for all 50 of these valves. We have flow, we have valve control, flow, pressure, and soil moisture, wireless and remote. So from here, we can see how is this zone watering. And it lets us experiment with it. And it's pretty fascinating what we've been able to discover. And I'll go back to the question, if it were easy, what would it look like? Maybe, again, I don't have any answers, but maybe if it were easy, it would just be about telling a system, if the red line is dry and the blue line is wet, just keep me in the sweet spot. Do I need to know? The start time and the run time, maybe. You don't want your sprinklers you know, watering the car dealership when all the people are walking in. So there's definitely some things you don't want. But if moisture is in the sweet spot, maybe the rest doesn't matter. So this is an example of, again, a moisture graph coming off that system. And all by itself, we can see moisture going up, moisture going down, and a little bit of a difference in the, in the days between. Right, the gap between the first spike and the second spike is greater than the second spike to the third spike, and so on. So let's overlay some of that data that we're collecting from that smart setup. We've got runtime here in the pink. And you can see two spikes that don't have runtime, right? The first one and this one here. There's no runtime associated with those spikes in moisture, which would lead to believe, right, that it's rain. And then we know it's rain when we actually overlay the rain, especially in this section here. You can see how clear it is. Look at all those little rain events and what it did to the moisture. And this system is set up to not operate until it drops below a threshold. And this was just a, spray, a, a zone of sprays, turf grass, you know, full sun, kind of your basic turf zone. And again, here in the beginning, we see water, we see rain, and we see the moisture go up, and then it's not going to come on until it dips below the threshold. And at, at this point, we have it set up where it can just do this forever. We don't, have to, we don't have to touch anything again. We don't actually need to care what the weather is in some, to some extent. Right? And, and I would say it's easy to do when you only have one zone. When you have all those devices on one zone, it's very easy. The bigger, more complicated the systems, it's not this easy. But if, it, if all the systems could look like this, it ends up being pretty darn easy. Okay, so what I'd like to do 
next is, is uh, have a little bit of a bigger thought. So we've been talking about uh, you know, nozzles and spacing and kind of down at the, at the zone level. And I think that sometimes that's where we spend, that's where we end up spending most of our time and most of our conversations. Which nozzle is better and what brand do you like and how do you do this? And I think I'd like to ask the question, for instance, let's say the city of Toronto came to your company and said, we have, we have money, whether it came from a grant or something else, we have money and we have a $10 million budget and we need you to um, advise us on all of our parks and where we can save the most water. You know, pretty, could be a standard question in the future for existing systems. Where would we start? Would you give them a proposal to visit every one of their parks, put catch cans out, figure out the DU, open up your book, go to your calculations? You know, what would you do? It could seem overbearing at first because that's a lot of parks, there's a lot of information, but I don't think it has to be that complicated. Again, it's just being curious about it. How could you do it a different way? And Paul's gonna talk mostly about this after. I'm just kind of uh, teeing him up, if you will. <laughs> that sometimes you have to take a bigger, a bigger approach, look from a, a higher perspective, think big. So I would like you to think about this. Maybe you only need a couple things at first to figure out your guidance. Maybe you just need some water bills, cubic liters, Maybe you just need to know the irrigated area, square meters, and this would be per site. And then you could run some calculations, how many liters per square foot are we using, and then you could find and look for some anomalies. I don't know how many parks they have here in Toronto, but if you were to look at all of them, there's probably some averages. Here's what the average park is using in liters per square meter, and there's going to be outliers, right? Some might be using twice as much as all the other ones, and some might be hardly using any. And so getting some big picture data to help you decide what direction you want to go, then you can kind of go down into figuring out why is this one using twice as much? Why is this one not using enough compared to the other sites? Okay, here's... Uh, Paul just happens to be in the room, which is amazing. I love the fact that he came here with me. This is the text message I got from Paul on March 26, 2021. Yep, I had to go back through my phone to find this text because I knew I had it. And it's literally a screen capture. And he says, I think I may have officially found my first million dollar leak. I'm kind of thinking, is he joking? But you know, I was nice. I say, big time, can't wait to hear. Literally couldn't wait to hear. Paul thinks he found a million dollar leak. This happens to be the park that Paul found his million dollar leak. Looks kind of like shit, but that's because it's under renovation. You know, system was off, I think, at this point. That's the park, it's in Hawaii. And there's the leak. There's the leak. It was over in liter terms, I think it was over 120 liters per minute. And that picture 
January 20th, 2024, one month ago, 2021 to 2024, that was going on at 120 liters per minute. And Paul may share this in his presentation, but the only reason that they, it wasn't their job to find it at first, but the only reason they found it is because one of their trucks fell in the sinkhole. And because this is Hawaii, it's volcanic rock, and it was just, just going out. If this leak had been anywhere around here, you'd see it you know, within an hour, but they didn't see it. And Paul found it because of what I mentioned before, looking at the big picture, looking at the liters per cubic meter or square meter. I have to remember my meters. That he was able to find it. So when you're looking at projects and where do you start, sometimes there's, there's bigger data. If you just have the water use and you've got some area, then you can make some correlations between the sites to help you figure out where to go. So again, <laughs> ask the question, how long should you water your lawn? Well, we can't ask Steve Ballmer, but I want to play a video for you of Steve Ballmer. Does everybody know who Steve Ballmer is? So just since some of you probably don't know, Steve is, I'm gonna, this is the Wikipedia. So Steve Ballmer is an American business executive and investor who was the chief executive officer for Microsoft from 2000 to 2014. He's the owner of the Los Angeles Clippers basketball team. And as of January 2024, Bloomberg estimates his personal wealth at around $135 billion, making him the sixth richest person in the world. Sixth richest person in the world. So now I'm gonna play a video, pay close attention. Steve, let me ask you about uh, the iPhone and the Zune, if, if I may. The Zune uh, was getting some traction, then Steve Jobs goes to Macworld and he, he pulls out this iPhone. What was your first reaction when you saw that? $500 fully subsidized with a plan? I said, that is the most expensive phone in the world, and it doesn't appeal to business customers because it doesn't have a keyboard, which makes it not a very good email machine. Now, it may sell very well or not. I, you know, We have our strategy. We've got great Windows mobile devices in the market today. We, you can get uh, a Motorola Q phone now for $99. It's a very capable machine. It'll do music. It'll do uh, internet. It'll do email. It'll do instant messaging. So I, I kind of look at that and I say, well, I like our strategy. I like it a lot. <laughs> Steve liked his strategy. And he might have been right at the time. Who would have known? the iPhone and Apple would become who they are. So he might have been right, but it's just a good example of it doesn't matter how smart you are, what company you work for, what your position is, or how wealthy you are. Seeing the future is just hard. You might get it right, you might not, but it's hard. So coming back around, final time, <laughs> to the question that's kept me engaged, motivated, excited for this industry, how long should you water your lawn? I'd like to propose this. Maybe there is no right answer yet. And perhaps we've been 
looking for the answer through the wrong set of lenses. Perhaps the technology required to answer this question hasn't been available yet. Do we know what the future is going to look like? We could take some guesses. We have smart controllers, but I'd like to remind you, or, or I guess put this out there, that smart controllers don't necessarily save water. Nozzles don't necessarily save water. They can, but I believe it's the irrigation professionals, like you in this room, who are curious enough to know how to use the smart controllers, how to use the nozzles that have the potential to save water. The controllers and the products don't save water. You guys here that know how to use them have the potential to save water because you guys are the value. You can't just put a controller on the wall and it's gonna immediately start saving. It's not like switching a toilet or a sink or a shower where it just works right away the first time. So 20 years is, is a long time not to have an answer for something that often seems so basic. And I've come to the realization that it is oftentimes easy to connect the dots looking backwards. It's easy for us to laugh at Steve Ballmer now. <laughs> Harder for us to laugh at him at the time of that recording because probably 50% of the people out there also believed what he believed. He may or may not have been wrong at the time. It's only easy now looking backwards. So my final message for you today is that the future doesn't create itself. Someone has to create it. And I encourage you to stay curious and to borrow a phrase from Reid Hoffman, one of the co-founders of LinkedIn. Things that seem totally nutballs, 10 years later, it's just the way you do it. Thank you.